Housing First turned all of that on its head. It said, you know what, actually, in order to do anything, we have to have housing first. Housing is really the foundation by which we do anything else. The issue of homelessness may seem simple, but it's not. And though the solution to the issue is simple, providing housing, how we get to that solution takes funding, collaboration, planning, and grit. On today's episode of TechBridge Talks, we discuss homelessness, funding, housing first, and the need for good data so that we can end the issue of homelessness. We also talk about how philosophies regarding homelessness and and even how we talk about it have changed over the years. And finally, we'll explore how technology is helping to find shelter beds for those in need and so much more, all through the collaborative use of real-time data. My guest on the show today is Catherine Marchman of Partners for Home. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, I really want to dig, dig deep into what Partners for Home is about and how you serve the community. So, but let's start with you. Uh, give us kind of the 30-second interview. Who are you? What are you about? And then let's dive into Partners for Home. Um, I'm the CEO at Partners for Home. We're the lead agency for the Atlanta Homeless Continuum of Care. I'm a licensed clinical social worker by training. I also happen to be an attorney, but I'm not really a real attorney. And um, I'm all about ending homelessness in the city of Atlanta. Well, I love that mission. Uh, we, we are behind you on that mission. We, I think we want to end homelessness in the city of Atlanta, and it's, it's something that is attainable. So, so talk about Partners for Home. Give, it, give us the background. Give us the, the mission. What are you about? Yeah. Um, so Partners for Home is the, what we call the lead agency or the collaborative applicant for the Atlanta Homeless Continuum of Care. Um, That is a U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development term of art. Um, So for any community that gets COC or Continuum of Care funding, which is a funding stream from HUD, so any community that gets that money is required to appoint a lead agency or the collaborative applicant. And what that means is um, that funding stream is very unique compared to many other government funds. the funding has to be applied for annually by that lead agency, hence the term collaborative applicant. Even though there's like 15 agencies that actually get the money, Partners for Home doesn't in fact get the funds. We, get, we do get some administrative planning dollars, um, but we're responsible for going after that money annually. It's a competition where we have to compete with other communities all around the country for that money. We do a local competition for the agencies that do get the funds, and then we package up the entire application. So our job is really to act as sort of the quarterback, if you will, for homelessness, to create the strategy on reducing and ending homelessness, and then to lead that strategy. And as a part of that, we oversee and administer some funds um, to that end. Uh, We work very closely with the city of Atlanta to do that work. And then, of course, we work very closely with um, all of our homeless service providers, soup to nuts, from soup kitchens to shelters to transitional housing to permanent housing and everything in between. Um, And that's really sort of who we are in a nutshell. Partners for Home was stood up in 2015 by the city who put together a design committee, looked around the country and said, 
we can't do this work with the public sector funds alone. We have to be able to leverage the private sector. And so I think they they smartly stood up a 501c3 so that we would be positioned to be able to leverage private funds to do this work. And we were created at that time. I came in as the first um, CEO and I've been there ever since. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. Okay. So, so you're instrumental in gaining and providing funds and in providing and helping to implement strategy to reduce and end homelessness in the Atlanta area. Is that a, is that a fair summary? Yes. City of Atlanta proper to be precise. Okay. Got you. Yeah, of course. Yes. So yeah, that it's a good differentiation because Metro Atlanta and city of Atlanta are very, very different communities and very different numbers of people. So, okay. Thank you. So, so then I'd, I'd love to dive a little deeper into just a, a discussion about homelessness for a minute. Um, now, ho- homelessness is, it's a subject that I feel like that a lot of people think they understand and almost no one does. <laughs> so, so what would you want to tell a listener about homelessness that, that the average person may not really fully understand and grasp? Well, I think it's one of those situations where the solution is actually sitting right in front of you and it's it's pretty simplistic and straightforward and and that's something we're constantly trying to emphasize which is homelessness is a housing problem period full stop. Um and I think a lot of people when they think about homelessness they get very easily distracted by these other things that they assume is sort of the driving force behind homelessness. And there are, in fact, of course, many other factors um, that come into play that could be driving somebody into homelessness, like mental health, like addiction, um, you know, like uh, income disparities. And of course, those are all really important factors. But at the end of the day, if we solve for that individual's housing crisis, then they are in fact no longer homeless. Um, And so, you know, that's something that we're really trying to drive home. And that's really where um, our focus is from an investment standpoint, from an alignment of resources standpoint, um, is really trying to scale and invest in permanent housing solutions by sort of homeless population. And, and so you said like, uh, I'd love to just dive a little deeper into that. You said homelessness is a housing problem, full stop. And so uh, what, what does that solution look like or what does that proposed or vision of a solution look like from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, what we talk about a lot is what we call sort of right-sizing our system um, by population. So again, recognizing that when you've met one person experiencing homelessness, you've just met one person experiencing homelessness, right? That um, we can't have a one-size-fits-all solution, assuming you know some blanket solutions for everybody in our system who's homeless. Um, that's also not going to work. And so what we uh, focus on is really using evidence-based practices um, and scaling those types of housing solutions uh, in a data-driven way. So for example, um, we know that the evidence tells us that for somebody who's chronically homeless, permanent supportive housing is really the best, most effective intervention for that group of people. And someone who's chronic, that's a HUD term of art again, it means that individual has a disabling condition 
and they've been homeless for a year or more, or they've had several episodes in the last four years that total a year or more. So it gets very specific very quickly. And we pair that person with permanent supportive housing. Permanent supportive housing is a permanently subsidized unit in the community. So an apartment, for example, that has a voucher or a subsidy attached to it. Um, and it comes with supportive services uh, that are client driven. Um, the, the intervention is housing first, which means there are no prerequisites to entry. And that is a guiding philosophy of our community, of me, of, of our organization, of me personally. Um, it is also an evidence-based practice. So again, it means there's no mental health treatment compliance. There's no sobriety requirements. There is no income requirements. Um, but that we also recognize we can't just put you in to housing after you've been homeless for five years and you're dealing with um, some significant vulnerabilities and, and disabilities and give you a key and say, good luck. Um, so we do attach supportive services to that individual um, and they work with the client on an ongoing basis to address their goals and needs, um, again, in a very client-driven way. So if that client does happen to be using and they're not at um, a, a stage of ready to address um, their addiction or wanting to get sober just yet, their case manager would use harm reduction to ensure that they can actually continue to use in a way that's safe, that's not going to jeopardize their health and well-being and the health and well-being of their neighbors. Um, and so that they can continue to do that in a way that's going to be safe and ensure their tenancy as well. So that's sort of what we mean by um, right-sizing our system. We need to look at how many people are in our system experiencing chronic homelessness, and then we need to scale the amount of supportive housing that we have in our system mm -hmm. to be able to um, get to equilibrium where we can exit people who are experiencing chronic homelessness faster than they are coming into our system, or in this case, timing into chronicity. Because, you know, if you're chronic, it doesn't mean you came in yesterday, right? It means that you came into our system and you got stuck in our system. Um, and then for non-chronic households, our primary um, intervention is rapid rehousing. And that is a time-limited subsidy. It's great because it's super flexible. Um, whereas the Walker household, you know, maybe they fell on hard times. But Mr. Walker has a long, you know, history of uh, work experience, maybe he has a trade, um, and he just needs a little bit of support to get back on his feet, get into housing, um, get back into a job, and then he can assume paying the rent after a period of time. Maybe the Marchman household is going to need a longer period of support. So maybe the Walkers only need three to four months of rental assistance and some case management. Um, maybe I have four kids, I'm a single mom, and I have more of a scattered work history. And so I might need nine to 12 months of rental subsidy support to be able to get back into the workforce, get my kids in daycare, and get situated so that I can gradually begin paying the rent on my own. And that's another example of a housing intervention that we would scale um, and are scaling right now for folks that are not disabled, who can go back into the workforce and begin paying rent. Of course, all of those things um, also have to rely on the availability of affordable housing in our community. <laughs> so that's another huge challenge and barrier that we are faced with, which is finding landlords and units 
that will rent to us um, and that will set our clients up for success uh, when, in fact, um, they have to go start paying their rent on their own at some point. Yeah. So those are some examples of some, you know, housing interventions that we are looking at investing in and scaling. So I, I'd love to dive for just a minute a little deeper into that the idea you mentioned earlier of housing first. Now I know a few decades ago this was sort of a radical idea in in the in the because the thinking a few decades ago was oh you've got to you've got to get people in, you've got to get them, you know, clean, you've got to get them organized and all the things and then you get them housing. And, and then I forget who it was that came along. I listened to a podcast on this recently, but they, they flipped it on its head and said, no, 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 they need housing first. They need that stability. And then the other things begin to fall into place and they saw greater levels of success in that. Can you talk just a little bit more about that philosophy and just sort of, I, I, I just unpacked it in a very rudimentary way, but could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically that simple. But Dr. Samson Barris, who um, founded Pathways to Housing out of New York City, is you know sort of the the father of Housing First, and we work fortunate to work very closely with him. But you know, we used to use this model that was really uh, considered more housing ready. You had to prove your readiness for housing, um, and you know, we had to sort of fix you, right? before you could get into housing. Um, so we had to get you on your mental health medication before you could prove your readiness for housing. Never mind the fact that uh, many childless single adults uh, are not eligible uh, for Medicaid, which is another huge misconception in our community. First of all, the confusion between Medicare, which is for seniors and Medicaid. Most people just assume that if you're poor, you get Medicaid. And that's in fact not true. If you're a childless single adult, no matter how poor you are, you don't qualify in Georgia for Medicaid. And because we have an expanded Medicaid, um, you're definitely not qualifying. So um, that's a huge challenge. Um, then you have to navigate an indigent um, mental health you know, system where you may have to wait months to see a psychiatrist and get on medication. Um, you know, similarly, uh, if you were using, as I said, you'd have to get sober in order to prove your readiness for housing. You might have to go get a job. You might have to take budgeting courses. You'd have to go through some transitional type housing. Um, and what we know about transitional housing is one, it's very expensive for the outcomes that you get. Two, there are many fail points along the way. Um, there's lots of rules and restrictions in, well, shelter in general, but in also in transitional housing. Um, and what we saw, and there's a really great graphic that shows this, but there's all these fail points along the way. Well, I didn't meet your rules and restrictions. I didn't show up at 8 a.m. to get my bed every day. Um, you know, maybe I had kids to get to school and I had to take an hour bus ride to get them there and to get back to get my bed. Um, maybe I actually had to go to a job and, and, you know, I couldn't queue in line for two hours to get that bed. Um, you know, maybe there's no drinking allowed in the transitional housing program. And I don't know about you, but I like to have a glass of wine when I get home from work every day. And I think that would be really challenging for me if I was living in a shelter, um, you know, among many other requirements, right? You can't have visitors. Um, a lot of our shelters don't allow you to have your spouse with you. Our quote unquote family shelters don't allow you to bring teenage boys. I have an 11 year old son and I'm a single mom. Um, imagine being faced with having to separate with your 12 year old son 
um, or to get into shelter or sleeping outside. Um, and, you know, never mind the fact that like the level of sort of dignity that is lost and having to go into a congregate environment that's completely foreign and unknown to you, where um, there are complete strangers all around you, some of whom may be using and maybe you're not, some of whom may have severe mental health issues. Um, maybe you do, but regardless, it's going to be, you know, scary. Maybe you're going to lose your stuff. Maybe there's bed bugs. There's all kinds of challenges that arise when we start to come into these congregate settings um, where, again, it, they're very rule laden and there's incredible barriers to entry, let alone to staying there. Um, and so Housing First turned all of that on its head. It said, you know what, actually, in order to do anything, we have to have housing first. Housing is really the foundation by which we do anything else. Um, how can you get a job? How can you get clean and sober? How, I mean, if I was living in a shelter, I would sure be using, right? So all of these things are nearly impossible to do without the stability of housing that and which undergirds everything else. And so that's really at its core what Housing First is. We recognize it as, again, both sort of a philosophy that our system should adopt across our whole system, whether you're shelter, we should be housing first, um, or in other words, like low as low barrier as possible to entry, um, or whether and whether you're permanent housing, you should be housing first. Um, limiting and streamlining as many rules and restrictions as possible to ensure that we're not creating more barriers to getting people into the front door. And then again, supporting them once they are in the door to meeting their goals um, and, and dreams. I love that. that was a really helpful description, just kind of juxtaposing the, the previous approach and the problems with it, with how the benefits of housing first. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. So, uh, so I'm, I'm just curious, You've been in the the field of of trying to eliminate homelessness for a, a bit, right? I think your bio even indicates on your website that you've been in it for for a long time in various capacities. Have, have any of your views or thoughts about homelessness sort of changed and shifted over the years that that you'd be willing to sort of share with us a bit? Well, um I, you know, I think um, I think to some extent housing first. I don't know that I was always a firm believer in that notion. Um, I think we we also, I mean, we continuously have to change people's minds around that issue. Um, so I think, and you know, I was trained in more of a housing ready, um, from more of a housing ready approach uh, coming up over the last 20 years or so as well. So I think um, my philosophy there has changed pretty dramatically. I remember running a shelter and, um, you know, the, the, we were bringing in families from sort of the entry point and there were families sleeping on the floor at at this other facility. And I was complaining to my boss and saying, you know, they didn't follow the guidelines in terms of when they were supposed to bring the families. And we have to have a process by which we bring people in. Otherwise it's going to be chaos and mayhem. And, you know, he looked at me and said, there's families sleeping on the floor. 
um, at this other place, like screw your process, you know, um, these are people. And so, and I oftentimes look back on that moment because now I'm in turn saying the exact same thing to some of our providers. Um, and it's interesting because in, in some ways, some of those providers have come full circle and are now, you know, even more sort of rigid in terms of their intake procedure and process. Like I'm an emergency shelter and I only do intakes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I mean, you know, then you, you're going to have to redefine yourself because that's not an emergency shelter. And so, um, you know, I, I think I've definitely um, come a long way uh, in terms of my position there. Um, so I would say that's probably the the primary thing. Okay. No, that's great. I appreciate that. So so let's talk a little bit about technology. You, as you know, we're TechBridge. We're all about technology for nonprofits to help nonprofits do more good, reach more people, impact more families and more lives, right? So can you talk a little bit about the role that technology plays both in helping to end homelessness, but also, you know, with Partners for Home? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is probably another area I've sort of changed my mind on. Um, but this was really just because I went from being a direct service practitioner to more of a systems level policy person. Um, you know, we are required by HUD to use a homeless management information system, HMIS. Um, we started when I was, when I was practicing, and when I came into this role, we were still on a very sort of homegrown system. Um, and, you know, we just very quickly realized that um, it, we needed a system that could function far better, um, that had a greater level of sophistication, um, that could generate, uh, you know, re- and reporting in particular for us is absolutely critical. If we're going to be data-driven, we've got to be able to get the data out in a meaningful way um, and in an efficient way, um, right, uh, to be able to inform our decisions. So, I mean, I think that's sort of the primary way that we use technology right now. Um, We have just updated our performance dashboards Um, that are all available on our website now that really give you a window into how our system is performing in almost in real time, Um, how our projects are performing at keeping people in housing, exiting them to permanent destinations, et cetera. Um, So that's absolutely critical to what we do. I mean, I, I don't know if you consider this technology per se, but um, data quality is is a huge ongoing challenge for our community. Um, and, you know, Atlanta's not alone in that. But um, what I was alluding to earlier is, you know, when I was a, an outreach worker and a case manager, I hated HMIS. I hated, ha- I used to have to do dual entry into my organization system and then into HMIS. And I was like, what is the point of this? This is so stupid. And, you know, again, I look back on that, I was like, I was such a knucklehead, like, you know, I mean, I was, I was such a hardcore social worker because, you know, I was like, I'm all about the client. I don't have time to deal with this data entry stuff. You know, this is beneath me. Um, And I would, I remember I would run through those questions and, 
uh, you know, it's questionable the level of data quality that I was entering. Um, and now, of course, looking back on that, I'm like, oh my God, you know, I mean, and so that's, that is a soapbox that we are continuously on with our providers is the data is everything, right? Um, it is everything to what we do. Um, and it's absolutely fundamental for us um, as a system because we use it for everything. And so um, really trying to improve and support our providers and our front-facing you know, folks that are in the trenches, on the streets, in shelters, and really helping to make the case with them uh, just how critical the data quality is and why we really need them to partner with us on getting that data in the system. Um, one other way that we've been using technology is last year for the first time, we used an app for the point in time count. So the pit count is you know, an annual survey that we're required to conduct um, where we essentially go out and count people who are homeless. Again, it gives us some good data. It's not a perfect science, but it, it helps kind of it helps us kind of gauge our progress. So we used an app for that last year uh, in 2020. Um, and you know, we will continue to do that. It really helped us streamline the data collection um, and then the reporting on the back end. It also helped us do um, some uh, mapping so that we could look at, not just how many people were experiencing homelessness, but where they were and where they're experiencing homelessness on the night of. Um, so there's some improvements we need to make to that. Um, we had volunteers uploading the maps like all at five points instead of where they were when they did the survey. Um, so, but we're going to, you know, we're going to refine those things from a technology standpoint. Um, but those are, sort of, I think the primary ways that we're using it right now, um, you know, we've, we've shifted our entire coordinated intake and assessment system into HMIS. So all housing assessments are conducted there. We've created a bed reservation system in HMIS. The challenge, um, as is, I think with most technology, right, is it's only as good as people, as, as who's using it. Um, and how they're using it. And so that's an ongoing challenge is the human element um, that has to interface with the technology. Not all of our shelters participate. So if I'm an outreach worker and I'm on the street with somebody, I, the cool thing is I can go into the system and say, and see what shelters have a bed available right now. And I can reserve it for the client in real time. And I can say, hey, Joe, you can go to Gateway Right now, there's a bed available for you. I've just reserved it and I've taken it offline. Um, but the challenge is not all of our shelters are using the bed reservation system. Um, and so that's an ongoing you know, issue with um, really trying to convince all of our partners to participate in some of those things. Yeah, you know, I, I love what you said a minute ago. Uh, you, said, you said the data is everything. And you know, one of our visions at TechBridge is this concept that uh, that we, through enough data, we can begin to create predictable pathways out of generational poverty. And so, I, I assume that's kind of what you meant. Like, the more we can collect, and even even if in that moment it seems like you know to the the worker that's in front of this person, maybe it doesn't seem important. But the more we can collect, the more we can predict, the more we can understand, and the more we can collectively sort of create these pathways out. Is that would you agree with that? And is there any any anything you'd like to elaborate on there? Yeah, no, 
Absolutely. I mean, what we need as much real-time data as possible. You know, we're actually really trying to get away from just relying on point in time. It's it's not super reliable. It's one point in time, um, you know, in the year. And so what we're really striving for is utilizing real-time data that's comprehensive, that informs our decision-making in, in real-time about how we... Um, invest in solutions, and then how we pair uh, people who are in our system today with the solutions that we have available to exiting them out of homelessness. Um, so, for example, we have a, um, a calculator uh, tool that we use that essentially inputs, you know, the number of people who are chronically homeless in our system. Um, and it you know, spits out how many new interventions of permanent supportive housing we're going to have to create. It's also looking at, you know, it's utilizing all the tools available in our system, which is utilization of our existing units of supportive housing, the attrition rate of those units, the inflow of, you know, how many new chronics are coming into our system every month or every week. Um, which in turn then calculates and tells us how many more interventions of supportive housing do we have to create um, or go out and find the money for to create if we're going to eventually get to equal, equilibrium, which is really sort of what we how we kind of consider an end state to a subpopulation of homelessness where our outflow you know, exceeds our inflow in, in, during any given month. And where we can, you know, confidently say, we know everybody in our system by name who's experiencing this type of homelessness. Um, and again, we use our data to drive that information and inform that information. Um, and those are things we have to report up to HUD as well. Um, so, you know, I mean, one of the things that we have to report to HUD annually, which goes into the AHAR, which is the report that HUD submits to Congress annually, is our bed coverage ratio. And that's just saying to HUD, we have, you know, 100 shelter beds and 90 beds are reported in HMIS. So HUD wants to know... How, how good of a job are you doing, regardless of whether they're, because none of these shelters are funded by this money. Um, only permanent housing projects are funded by COC money. But we're beholden to HUD to say, how good of a job are you doing at convincing people that don't even get this money to participate in your data system? That's how, you know, how important this is to us as a system and to HUD um, at the federal level to demonstrate that we are accurately accounting for every bed in our system. Wow. Okay. That's great. That's great. Um, and really interesting. I, I didn't realize some of that. So I, I guess last question, um, you know, again, focusing kind of on technology, on TechBridge, you know, what has your experience been in working with TechBridge and collaboration, uh, that sort of thing? Yeah, um, we've actually primarily been working with Karen Kramer, who's been just really amazing at helping us kind of brainstorm and think through what's possible. Um, one of, she's also, by the way, been volunteering on a couple different committees. I think she's on our performance committee as well. Um, and, you know, I, 
honestly, I think just having that willingness of, of her by her and others at TechBridge to sort of just, just participate in volunteer in a volunteer capacity in our work is, is really incredible. Um, we need, we need smart people at the table to help inform this work. Um, and so that's been an invaluable contribution, but more specifically, um, one thing from a technology standpoint that we're we're really trying to figure out that Karen has been helping us think through um, has been looking at all of the systems in our community that a homeless person may touch. The hospital system, the criminal justice system, the emergency services system, 911, EMS, police and fire, um, and figuring out how we can tie all of those data systems together um, to ensure that when, when a system, regardless of which system it is, touches a person who's homeless, we can extract the most relevant data from those systems to one, be able to inform how we interact with that person in that moment. And two, um, to really be able to sort of expedite and um, improve the way we link that person to resources and housing and ultimately get them out of our system as quickly as humanly possible. And so um, what Karen's been amazing at is I tell her something like that and I say, what technology can help us do that? Is, is there a technological solution to helping us figure this out and make that happen. So I speak it in social work terms and then she comes over here with all the fancy, you know, technology language that I don't speak, right? And um, and she says, oh yeah, we can, we can create this thing and do a data lake and create all these, I don't know, I, I don't even know the words. Um, and we can make that happen, no problem. Um, and, you know, and here's what it would take. So having that sort of visionary partner who speaks that language has been absolutely really critical. And even again, just, you know, and we have a statewide um, implementation with our data system. So there's a lot more nuances because we can't just go out and then make these decisions unilaterally. We have to go back to a statewide committee that's run by our state finance uh, housing agency, DCA. Um, so there's a lot of other nuances to actually making those kinds of things happen. And the cool thing about Karen is that she's then willing to say, oh, and invite, feel free to invite me to the meeting because I can help be your translator and um, just be a voice from the technology side of things to kind of help folks understand what is possible. And so that has been just huge in helping us kind of take some next steps in that space. That's fantastic. That's uh, uh, Karen is the best. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. So she's, she's amazing. Um, well, Catherine, this has been really great. Very uh, informative. I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, do you have any, any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we covered everything. Yeah, we were we were pretty thorough there. This feels like a really great conversation. So, well, uh, then in that case, you know, Catherine, thank you for joining me on the show today, and we look forward to continuing our work 
uh, with you to end homelessness. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Adam. It was fun. Thank you for listening to TechBridge Talks, a podcast about breaking the cycle of generational poverty through the innovative use of technology. This podcast is produced by TechBridge. To find out more about our work and how you can be a part, visit techbridge.org. That's techbridge.org. Also, make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening and tune in next week for more great content.